0: Well, if you've got a Bible with you this morning, I invite you to open it to Acts chapter 8. Uh, if you don't have a Bible and you'd like a Bible, there are Bibles available at the Connect Desk in the lobby. If you don't own one, you're welcome to take one of those home with you. Um, but as a church, we are continuing our look, uh, our study of the book of Acts together. And uh, this book, the book of Acts, helps us understand uh, quite a bit about the birth and the growth of the early church. Uh, We've seen that growth, as we've been studying this book, take place in kind of explosive ways, right? At times, thousands of people came to faith on the same day. And so we've become accustomed to reading things like, and there were added that day, 3,000 souls. Or the number of disciples multiplied greatly. The story we are looking at today is the story of just one man who came to put his trust in Jesus. Today we come to the story of a man who is on a journey towards grace. We're looking at the story of the Ethiopian eunuch as we find it in Acts chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 26 to 40. But before I read the story, let me just kind of quickly Tell you that things are not always what they appear to be. And what I mean by that is sometimes it looks like one thing is happening, and that thing that is happening is sort of the most natural thing in the world, but there is something that is going on behind the scenes, something we don't see, and that thing is instrumental in what is taking place here. I, Clear as mud, I know. So so maybe an example or an illustration will help. Uh, Ilona and I have been slowly making our way through The Crown, the Netflix series that chronicles the royal family from 1947 through 2005. It's a bit of a slog at times, but there's lots of fascinating history that took place during those 60 years. Uh, in the final season, there's an episode... That highlights the relationship between Prince William and Kate Middleton. Now, the two of them met while attending university, uh, St. Andrew's University in Scotland. In that sense, it is just a normal story. of two college kids meeting, discovering they have lots of things in common and falling in love, it's kind of a classic prince and princess fairy tale. What I didn't know is that Carol Middleton, Kate's mother, had a strong desire that her daughter would marry the Prince of Wales and future king. And so when it was announced that, the print, that, that Prince William was taking a gap year and volunteering with a charity in Chile, Kate's mom insisted that her daughter do the same thing. And when it was announced that Prince William would be attending St. Andrews University, Carol unenrolled her daughter from Edinburgh University, the school all her friends were attending, and enrolled her at St. Andrews University in the hopes that this would lead to a romance, and it did. Now, I'm not sharing this to just sort of trade in royal gossip, but because it's a reminder that sometimes what looks like a simple boy-meets-girl or prince-meets-princess story is actually more complicated than that, and that there are things taking place behind the scenes that we don't always know about. The story we meet in Acts chapter 8 is something like that, and I entitled this message, Seeking Grace. And I did that because that title can run in two directions. On the one hand, it is a good title for this passage because this passage is the story of a man who appears to be seeking grace. He's looking for something. On the other hand, it's a good title for this passage because seeking is one of the characteristics of God's grace. In His grace, God seeks lost people. So in any case, let's read the passage. We're looking at verses 26 to 40 from Acts chapter 8, and here's what it says. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza, And he said, well, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scriptures that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom? I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, And he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotas, and as he passed through, preached the gospel to all the towns and came until he came to Caesarea. Well, we we learn about a number of things in this passage and through this story. The first one is that we learn something about the mysterious providence of God. So let me give you a theological definition of providence. Providence, then, is the sovereign, divine superintendence of all things, guiding them toward their divinely predetermined end in a way that is consistent with their created nature, all to the glory and praise of God. The thrust of that is that God is in control of all things and that nothing happens apart from his purpose and his plan. He oversees all the events of life, the big things, the small things, and everything in between. That is God's providence. And what we learn about God's providence in this story is that he does things for reasons unknown to us. Now, you can actually see evidence of God's providence all through this story. A good place to start is is with verse 26, the first verse of our passage, where it says, Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Now, on its own, that verse might not seem that surprising. But it is when you consider the context. Uh, Earlier in Acts chapter 8, we read about Philip's missionary adventures in the city of Samaria. We looked at these verses two weeks ago, where it said, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. From there, the chapter moves on to talk about a sort of power encounter between Philip and this individual that is referred to as Simon the Magician or Simon the Sorcerer. And we looked at that last week. But in verse 25, the verse right before our passage, it says this, Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans from all appearances Philip is involved in a successful ministry to the Samaritans. Right everywhere he goes, people are responding favorably to the message of the gospel that he preached. And these verses describe the beginning of the church in Samaria. And we might think that God's next bit of counsel to Philip would be something along the lines of look. Establish the church in Samaria. Disciple the people you've reached. Appoint elders. But instead what God says is rise. Go toward the south and to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And then Luke adds the geographical note. This is a desert place. Now the truth is. It was, and it still is, a desert place. I think I have a picture of the road to Gaza. It's a deserted place. There's no one there. So it's an interesting bit of instruction, isn't it? You're having lots of success in the cities and the towns of Samaria. You're ministering to lots and lots of people. And then God says, now I want you to go to a deserted road and minister to just one individual leave the urban context go to a rural one forget about the many and concentrate on the one that's not the normal or desired progression in ministry right the expectation for lots of individuals is that you start out as a youth pastor and you end up as the pastor of a megachurch that's not always God's plan. And what's not clear to us as we read this passage and what would not have been clear to Philip at all is why God set his affections on this particular Ethiopian official. That's part of what I mean by saying that we learn something about God's mysterious providence. Now, there is a clue that helps us understand why God sent Philip to this man And that clue comes back in chapter 1, and we've stopped to take note of that passage or that verse several times already in this series. There, just before Jesus ascends into heaven, he says this to his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And this is the basic movement of the book of Acts. It begins, the church begins in Jerusalem We've been looking the last couple of weeks of how it begins then to spread in Judea and Samaria. And now the rest of the book is about the gospel's spread to places like Ethiopia, which was pretty much considered the end of the earth. This story is part of God's providential means of beginning that process. The conversion of one man on a desert road might not seem like it's all that important, but it was an indication of God's intention for the world. God's providential leading is sometimes a mystery. If you were to ask me why Crossridge Church is situated in the middle of downtown Cloverdale, and I were to give you a one-word answer to that question, that one word would be providence. We are here because of God's providence. Now, we planted this church back in 2011, and when we first set out to plant a gospel-centered church in Surrey, this isn't isn't where we imagined we would end up. Uh, I think Andy's words, the first time we started talking about Cloverdale was, Anywhere but Cloverdale. Uh, we, We had a plan. We tried to find space in schools, in warehouses, because that would be really cool. We looked at community centers, but God in his providence kept leading us here. Now, in hindsight, it all makes sense. But at the time, all we could do was chalk it up to the providential leading of God and respond accordingly. And the reminder for all of us, not just in church life, is to remember that God has a purpose in all things, and often we are completely in the dark as to what that purpose might be. There's an even clearer demonstration of God's providence, and that's seen in the fact that He finds us even when we think we've been searching for Him. So, one way we could describe this picture of God's mysterious providence is seen in the way that God works in the life of this Ethiopian official. In one one sense, this is a story, or it seems like a story, of a man in search of God. But if we read the story carefully, we will see that what it really describes is God in search of a man. The Ethiopian eunuch was not a Jew. He was probably a proselyte to the Jewish religion. Verse 27 tells us that he had traveled to Jerusalem to worship. Now that journey from Ethiopia to Jerusalem was a thousand mile journey. The whole journey there and back would have taken him about five months on a chariot. So this man has gone to great expense. He's gone to great effort to come and worship the Lord. He's in the middle of a physical back and forth to Jerusalem. That's his journey. But what we really discover is he's actually in the middle of a spiritual journey. Even as he travels back from Jerusalem to Ethiopia, he's trying to understand the Bible. And he doesn't really get it. He's reading the ancient prophecies of Isaiah. He's a man searching for God. But what's even more striking in the passage is the way God is searching for him. Right, God just says, look, Philip, go down to this desert road. It's the Spirit of God that then prompts Philip to go and run beside the man's chariot. And then there is this amazing coincidence he just happens to be reading from the scroll of Isaiah out loud. And he sees a guy running next to the chariot and he says, and, and, and he says, do you understand what you're reading? I, no, I don't. So he calls Philip to come up and sit beside him in the chariot. And then verses 32 to 34 say this. Right? Who is this prophecy about? Okay, I will give you a gold star, each of you a gold star if you get this right. Who is this prophecy about? You're in church. You know it's about Jesus. Jesus is the one who was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Jesus is the one who was silent before his accusers. Jesus is the one to whom justice was denied. Jesus is the one whose life was taken away. So then verse 35 says, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. There was no doubt when this man left Ethiopia for Jerusalem, he saw himself as a man setting out to search for God. But after this encounter with a random man running beside his chariot who could answer his theological questions, there's no doubt he came to realize that God was searching for him. This man's experience was the same as that expressed by an anonymous hymn writer in 1904 who penned these words. I sought the Lord and afterward I knew. He moved my soul to seek Him, seeking me. It was not that it was not I that found, O oh, Savior, true. No, I was found of Thee. What the hymn writer is saying is, you know, I thought I out, I, I thought I set out on this search to find God, but what I really came to discover is that God had been searching for me. In 1890, just to keep it current and relevant, Francis Tom Thompson wrote a poem called "The Hound of Heaven." And the metaphor is of a hound chasing a hare. He draws ever nearer in the chase with unhurrying and unperturbed grace. So does God pursue us, or pace, so does God pursue us with his grace. See, even when we think we've been searching for God, we discover that God has been searching for us. And when God is searching for us, he will find us. There is no escaping the hound of heaven. I, I, I know I've told at least some of you this story before, but I attended a, a Bible college in Caronport, Saskatchewan, basically in the middle of, of nowhere. Uh, the nearest city was the booming metropolis of Moose Jaw. It's about a 15 or 20-minute uh, drive from, from college. And I remember uh, very clearly that on one Friday, I borrowed my roommate's car. I drove it into Moose Jaw to run some errands. And on my way back from Moose Jaw, I picked up a hitchhiker on the side of the road. In the course of that, you know, 15 or 20-minute drive uh, back to campus, I had the opportunity to share my faith with him. Uh, I let him out at the gas station uh, on campus there, the, the pilgrim restaurant, and, you know, went back to my room uh, to, my, to my dorm, and my roommate was actually headed to Swift Current to visit his fiance for the weekend, so he took his keys. You know, He left about 30 minutes later, and on the Sunday night when my roommate came back to school, he said, you'll never believe what happened. I left here on Friday, and I picked up a hitchhiker, <laughs> and I started sharing my faith with him. And he said, I was just in this car. And the guy said the same thing. (laughs) And that guy gave his life to Christ in that 1982 Honda Civic on the side of the highway. When God is searching for you, he will find you. Now, your story might be less dramatic than that. It might be more dramatic than that. But your story, your conversion. Is no less a product of God's providence than that. It might just be the family that you were born into. That's God's providence. It might be the friend who invited you to church. That's God's providence. God seeks lost people. Second thing we learn about in this passage is the inclusive nature of the gospel. Now, I'm going to say something about the exclusive nature of the gospel as well, but I think sometimes we forget just how radically inclusive the gospel really is. And what we see in this passage is that the gospel breaks down all barriers of ethnicity, class, culture, and sex. Listen again to verse 27. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. Now, we learn a lot about this man from those few words. We learn that he was, firstly, an Ethiopian. Turns out he's actually the first Christian convert from Africa. Ethiopia at that time meant the upper Nile region. It would be the area that we refer to as Sudan today. So the man is a foreigner. He's of a different ethnicity, a different culture, but he had come to worship the Lord in Israel. We're also told that he was a eunuch. Now, eunuchs were castrated men, and this was not uncommon in the Ethiopian court. These types of officials, as we're told, were often put in charge of the royal harems. And this particular eunuch was in charge of the royal treasury and worked closely with Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. Now, you can understand why such officials were required to be eunuchs. Now, it meant a great sacrifice on the part of the eunuchs, obviously. But this man at least seems to have been handsomely rewarded or compensated. He had the means now to travel by chariot all the way to Israel But still, he was a sexually altered man. Now, those two things, those two facts about him, the fact that he was a foreigner and the fact that he was a eunuch would have had implications for his participation in worship once he actually got to Jerusalem. Foreigners were only permitted in the outer courts of the temple. And his status as a eunuch would have prevented him from worshiping God at the temple at all. The book of Deuteronomy gave these instructions. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. That would have been the man's experience when he came to Jerusalem. He could come to the outer courts of the temple, but couldn't em- enter the temple proper. So he's come all this way. Now he's riding back to Ethiopia in his chariot, and the Spirit of God says to Philip, a middle-class Jewish man, go up to his chariot and stay near it. And again, it's fascinating that the man just happens to be reading from the scroll of Isaiah. Now he's reading from chapter 53 in Isaiah. But just a couple of chapters later in Isaiah, in chapter 56, we read this promise from God. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I'm a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, Choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Now, it is not unintentional that God's promise to the eunuchs is that they shall not be cut off. This man was both a foreigner and a eunuch, and this promise was for him. This entire encounter with Philip in his chariot and the Ethiopian eunuch's subsequent baptism are a picture of how the gospel breaks down all barriers of ethnicity, class, culture, and sex, and whatever other barriers might exist. Listen to verse 36 and note the wording of the eunuch's question. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? His question is, what prevents me from being baptized? Now remember, he has just been prevented from full participation in worship while he was in Jerusalem because of his foreign status and his status as a eunuch. And his question is a gospel question. What prevents me from being baptized? The gospel's answer to that question is that there is nothing to prevent him from being baptized because the gospel breaks down all such barriers. Here's how the Apostle Paul put it in Galatians chapter 3. He said, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Do you know what the answer is for the racial tensions that exist all over the world? It's the gospel. Do you know what the answer is to all the sexual confusion that exists all over the world? It's the gospel. Now, I want to add something further to that, which is to say that Christianity is the most inclusive religion. And I don't mean that in, in sort of like a virtue signaling kind of way. I mean that the gospel really is inclusive. I mean it in the way the angel announced the birth of Jesus. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for All the people. Now listen, I know that if we go around saying that Christianity is the most inclusive religion, people will scoff at that idea. According to secular definitions of inclusivity, Christianity doesn't seem nearly inclusive enough, but that's a wrong understanding of what inclusivity actually is and quite simply not true. Now if you talk to a secularist, they will tell you that religion is basically a product of culture And that every culture has its own religion. So Europeans and North Americans developed Christianity. South Asian cultures developed Hinduism. Far Eastern cultures developed Buddhism. The Middle Eastern and North African cultures developed Islam. That's standard fare in world religion classes on secular college and university campuses. But is it true? Laman Sine was a longtime professor at Yale University. He wrote a book in 2003 entitled Whose Religion is Christianity? And what he points out in that book is that all the major religions, except Christianity, have their population centers near where they started. Now, maybe the stats have changed a little bit since 2003, but at least at the time, 96% of Muslims live in the Middle East, Africa, and South Asia. Only 4% live in Europe, North America, South America, China, and the Far East. 88% of Buddhists live in East Asia. 98% of Hindus live in India or South Asia. But when you get to Christianity, it's completely different. 25% of Christians live in Central or South America. 22% live in Africa. 15% and counting live in Asia. 12% live in North America. 20% live in Europe. There's no other religion that looks like that. Why? Richard Bauckham, who is a professor at Cambridge University in England, said this, Almost certainly, Christianity exhibits more cultural diversity than any other religion, And that must say something about it. Absolutely, that says something about it. What it says is that the gospel does not belong to any particular ethnic or cultural group. The gospel was and is every bit as much for the Ethiopian eunuch as it was for Philip. The gospel is good news of great joy for all people. And when you read the book of Acts in its entirety, that's what you find. What you find is that the gospel is for the whole world. It's an inclusive gospel in that sense. But we also learn something about the exclusive nature of the gospel. So saying that the gospel is both inclusive and exclusive is not contradictory. Here's what the Apostle Paul said in the book of 1 Timothy. He said, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. You can see the inclusive and the exclusive nature of the gospel in those verses. The gospel is for all people or for all kinds of people. But the hope for all people is found only in one person. Jesus Christ. In our passage, the Ethiopian eunuch is reading a portion from the book of Isaiah and he asks Philip who the prophet was talking about, himself or someone else? And notice that Philip doesn't give him the postmodern answer to the question. He doesn't say... Well, you know, you create your own meaning from the text. You decide what it means for you. Verse 35 says, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And that simple description of what Philip did is very instructive. It tells us, firstly, that the message of the gospel is biblical. So elsewhere, Paul will say, for I deliver to you as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, right? The gospel comes from the word of God. Second thing that verse helps us understand is that the gospel is the good news about Jesus. That's the exclusive part of the gospel. Salvation is found in no one else. In Acts 4, Peter says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So it's inclusive, but it's exclusive. It's found in Jesus alone. Now, I don't know where exactly in his gospel presentation Philip got to baptism. But as they're riding along in the chariot, the Ethiopian wants to get baptized right right away, right? He sees the water. What prevents me from getting baptized? He's riding along suddenly to come upon this body of water, and he says, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Now, we had our baptism class last Sunday. We've got baptisms scheduled for Easter Sunday. One of the things we teach in that class is that baptism isn't necessary for salvation, you aren't saved because you get baptized. But baptism is the natural expression of a life surrendered to Jesus. Whenever we do baptisms across the street, we take some time to explain what baptism is all about. Baptism is a symbolic demonstration of conversion. To be baptized is to declare your faith in Jesus and in Him alone. Like a wedding where the, the couple states, forsaking all others and being true to you alone, a person being baptized declares the same thing. It's a beautiful thing. Now, we have a good-sized group planning on getting baptized on Easter Sunday, but there I would just say I think there are others of you who still need to take that step. You, you may have decided in your heart to follow Jesus, but you need to make that declaration public. The Ethiopian asked the question, what prevents me from being baptized? So if you have not yet been baptized, let me ask you the question, what prevents you from being baptized? There's nothing in the gospel that prevents you. Listen to this sampling from the book of Acts that describes the normative pattern for baptism. At the conclusion of his sermon on the day of Pentecost, Of Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, we read this. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 16, as Paul is in the city of Philippi, It it, it recounts what happened in that city. It says, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, her and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Later in that same chapter, as Paul is miraculously broken out of prison. The jailer's fearful for his life, right? He's let the prisoners escape somehow. Wants to kill himself. But then Paul comes in, explains the gospel, and here's what the jailer says. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. That's the normal pattern. You come to faith in Jesus and you express that faith. One of the ways you express that faith is with baptism, just as this Ethiopian eunuch did. Now, we've got that coming up on Easter Sunday. There's still time, still opportunity if you want to be part of that. I think it's good for us to pray for those who are getting baptized and taking that step. So join me in in praying along those lines. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your grace that seeks us. Uh, Sometimes we might be running from you and you seek us. Sometimes we might feel like we're searching for you and you're in fact searching for us. And God, we just recognize that this morning. We recognize that at all times. Your grace is a seeking grace. And Father, we also just acknowledge that, uh, that the proper response to that is to give our lives to you. And to demonstrate that even in, in the, the public confession of faith we do at baptism. And so we pray we would be uh, faithful to that, obedient to that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.